and the things of earth grow dim. Uh, if you have children that are kindergarten through third grade and are going to children's church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Melody. Uh, if you have kids that are staying with us, there are activities on that back table. They are free to grab and take to their seat. Um, there's also a sermon notes designed specifically for your children that they can grab and take back with them. Uh, they complete that and play the bingo game. They can come see me afterwards and I'll have uh, a piece of candy uh, for them. Uh, so we're currently in the midst of a series that we're simply calling The Parables. Uh, and parables are stories that Jesus told that desire to address an issue. Uh, they desire to challenge his audience and they desire to invoke a response. And we've said over and over that parables aren't just silly anecdotes, but they are powerful stories that call for a decision from us, the hearers. And so as we study these parables, we seek to understand what is the main point, what is Jesus trying to address, and what is he calling us to. And one of the things that Jesus often used parables for was to describe or to address issues that are difficult for us to talk about. And today we are going to look at one of those issues. We're going to, be, uh, we're going to look at the parable of the shrewd manager uh, in Luke chapter 16, if you want to head that direction. And in this parable, Jesus is going to look at the heart. He's going to look at lordship as it pertains to our finances. And so often we view money as a private issue, and it is. But Jesus spoke on money often because it is, and it was, it, one of those issues that gets in the way of our faith. In fact, Jesus spoke about the subject of money and all of his teaching second only to the kingdom of heaven. And one-third of the parables uh, that he spoke dealt with the issue of wealth or finances. So I figured in our eight-part series, we at least had to spend one week on the subject. Uh, so before you get up and walk out this morning, though, because we're talking about money, uh, remember that it is important to Jesus, and because of that, it should be important to us, not just a subject we avoid. So we're in Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1, and we are going to read through verse 15. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, uh, so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, the man replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450 gallons of olive oil. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than, than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into, into eternal dwellings. For whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property, property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. 
What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy and the privilege it is to come and to worship you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the joy it is to sing songs of praise to you. God, we thank you for these words that Jesus shared. And God, I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us today. God, I pray that you would help me to have your words and to clearly communicate uh, your heart on this subject and your desire uh, for lordship in our hearts. So God, I just pray that you would, uh, again, speak to us today, Lord, and that you would call us to deeper faith in you. God, we love you and we praise you and it's your name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us throughout this series, one of the, the important things to distinguish in a parable is who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. And this is an easy one because in verse 1, Luke records, Jesus told his disciples. So the audience of this parable is the disciples, and the audience today is us, or at least those of us that claim to be Christians or followers of Jesus. He is talking to you and I in this parable, and he's going to get up in our business and talk about this issue of how we manage our wealth or how we manage our money. We'll see at the end of the parable he, he, that the Pharisees were also listening into the story, and, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and we're going to touch on them uh, towards the end. But for now, the primary audience is the disciples or the followers of Jesus. And so if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus and you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, this message is not specifically for you, although I think there is some wisdom in it. And so instead of focusing on the issue of wealth, Jesus is not concerned about that. He is concerned about your heart. He is concerned about your heart just as he is concerned about the heart of the Christian that gets distracted by the things of this world. And so Jesus' offer to you today is not richness or wealth, but instead he offers you something so much greater. He offers you forgiveness of sin and eternal life with him. And so that's you and you are here and you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. You can just kind of tune out the rest of this sermon but I would challenge you to consider, to ponder whether or not you have ever followed Jesus with your life. And to consider whether or not this might be the day that you choose to follow him. The Bible says the wages of sin is death or separation from God for eternity. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross and he died for your sins. He rose victorious over death and he offers you eternal life in him if you'll repent and follow him. The Bible says that Jesus loves you. And so, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just sit back and ponder that. And if you're available, come back next week, and we're talking about the parable of the prodigal's son. But for those of us here that are Christians and are his disciples, Jesus has left us with this somewhat confusing and challenging parable to look at. So let's walk through it and see what he is saying to us. So the story begins with the owner calling in his manager because uh, his manager has been accused of wasting his possessions. doesn't sound like he was necessarily stealing, but he just wasn't doing a good job at managing the operation. And so he calls him and he asks him to present an audit of his books and lets him know he's no longer going to be the manager. And so this unjust steward gets the news that he's being fired and he has this moment of panic in verse 3. He says, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too prideful, or I am ashamed to beg. We've all had those moments in life where the emotion of the situation kind of settles. We realize we've messed up, and then we're like, oh no, what do I do now? That's this, that's this, uh, un, this shrewd manager. I, don't, I, I, I use illustrations from this all the time, but in the show The Office, have you ever seen The Office? Uh, Michael Scott is the boss, and at one point he just emotionally quits his job. 
And so he spends the, the first half of this episode just enjoying his two weeks' notice because he believes he can get a job anytime he wants, wherever he wants. But then about halfway through the episode, there's the, he meets this man that is interviewing for his old job. And this man is more qualified. This man has driven four hours just for an interview. And this man starts to explain how, how tough the job market is. And Michael has a moment of panic when this reality hits. And that's what's happened to this unjust steward. He says, I can't work a manual labor job. I've got too much pride to beg, so what will I do? And then the light bulb goes on, and this man comes up with a scheme. He says, while I'm still employed, I'm going to start forgiving the debts on my master's behalf. So these people whose debts I've forgiven will welcome me into their home. They will give me a job after I'm fired here. And so this man calls in two of his master's debtors. And for one, he cancels half the debt. For the other, he cancels 20% of the man's debt. And these were just like no small accounting changes. Commentators vary in their estimation, but most uh, estimate that these represent at minimum a $50,000 reduction in modern equivalents. So this man made himself some friends, and he set himself up for the future. Now, we understand this parable so far. We have seen or heard of these kind of unethical characters on the news, even in our, recent, our, our, our local news recently. But the strange twist comes in verse 8. Jesus says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Did you catch what just happened there? Jesus just said the master commended the dishonest manager. That's not what we expect. So we've got to delve in and see what Jesus is saying to us today. Remember that parables are not word-for-word instruction on how to live life, but they are stories that have an overarching point that Jesus is trying to call us to. I remember in high school, I played football, and every Saturday morning at 8 a.m., we would show up and we would watch film from the previous game. And when we showed up, we didn't just get to watch the highlight film, but they made us watch every single play. Because there are lessons to be learned from the positives and the negatives. And so Jesus here, he's given us a negative example that we can learn positive truth from. And so we're going to look at a question and then three principles or applications from this parable. And so the question we have to wrestle with throughout this parable is, who or what is the master of your heart? Who is the Lord of your life? This is a question we've seen throughout the parables and we saw throughout our Exodus series as well. You see, Jesus doesn't talk about issues concerning money because he's worried about the finances of the church or missionaries or pastors in the future. The Bible says he doesn't need to. It says his reserves, his access to wealth is not lacking, but it is overflowing. Psalm 50 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning he has all the resources in the world. He doesn't need our money. And so if this isn't about funding the church, why does Jesus talk about wealth so much? And the deal is Jesus doesn't talk about wealth out of concern for resources, but he talks about wealth because of his concern for his disciples' hearts and his concern for our hearts. When you're driving around your car and you look down at the dash, there are all sorts of different gauges that illustrate the health of your vehicle. And in many ways, money or wealth is one of the most important gauges in the health of a Christian's life. Our wealth, our money, where we spend it or where we give it is a gauge for who our master is and what is in our heart. 
In many ways, it's the check engine light of our hearts. Verse 13, Jesus says, Nobody can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And so this is a heart issue. We talk about money not out of concern for our budget, but out of concern for our hearts. You know, oftentimes we say we'll start giving to God when we have more money or we have more time or or whatever it is. But the reality is it's a heart issue and not a numbers issue. This This is true both when we have a little and when we have a lot. Our wealth is a gauge of our heart. It shows us what we value. For example, if we value our own happiness, we will spend our money on things we think will make us happy. If we value convenience, we are going to spend our money on gadgets we think are going to make life easier. If we value comfort, we will spend our wealth on our comforts. If we value status, we will spend our money on things that we think make us look good. If we value our children more than anything else, we will disproportionately spend our money on them. If we value others, we will spend our money on others. If we value the kingdom of God, we will give towards kingdom causes. Where we spend our money says a lot about what is most important to our heart. Where we spend our resources, where we spend our time is a wonderful gauge of the heart. In a study by economists, they asked people if they'd rather have $50,000 while those around them made $25,000, or would they rather make $100,000 and their friends made $200,000, right? That seems like a no-brainer, right? The person earns twice as much in scenario two. But when they ask that question, over half of the respondents chose the smaller amount if they'd make twice as much as those around them. What we see in that is that our finances are a heart issue, first and foremost, and not a money issue. And that's point one. Our finances are first and foremost a heart issue, not a numbers, not a money issue. And that's not exclusive to Americans. In, In North Korea, people are anxious to buy a refrigerator as soon as they can, right? That's not surprising. We, we all have a refrigerator, and we're thankful for that. But in North Korea, power is so uh, unreliable that the appliance becomes little more than a status symbol. In fact, most families turn their refrigerators into bookshelves, right? Wealth and prestige is their God. It's a heart issue. Paul David Tripp says, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing, when that desire becomes a ruling thing. Right? We've seen that over and over. Uh, we often make good things idols in our lives. Money is an incredible resource that we are blessed with, but it can become a terrible God in our lives. Jesus in Matthew 6 said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. So what does money or what does your wealth gauge say about your heart? What is the master of your life? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it security? Is it stability? Is it fear? Is it lack of discipline? Is it status? Is it your children? Is it something else? If you sat down with a list of how you spent your resources, what would stand out as most important in your life? Your wealth is a gauge of your heart. 
And note that it doesn't say that it's better to be poor or better to be rich, but it said it is best to make God the master of your heart. I've seen incredibly wealthy people that are incredibly generous. And I've seen poor people, very poor people, that have clearly made wealth the master of their heart. So the heart's the issue, not giving statements, not tax brackets, not W-2 forms. It's the heart that's the issue. So who is the master of your heart? In verse 14, Jesus addresses the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of his day. It says they overheard his story and they were so mad at him that they were literally sneering at him. They were growling at him. In verse 15, he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. The Pharisees were known for putting on a great show when they would give towards the church. God says, that's not of value. He says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Jesus says, we can put on a show for the outside world, but still be lacking in our heart. The Pharisees looked like they had it all figured out. But deep down, their God was still their money, their wealth, their prestige, their pride, and not the God of the universe. So who is your God? Who is your master? We talked about this a lot at camp a couple weeks ago when I, was, when I had the chance to, to share at camp. And we said that God doesn't care about your appearance that you put on, but he sees and cares about your heart. 1 Samuel 16, the prophet said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what is in your heart? So that's the first thing that we pull out of this parable. It is a heart issue. The second thing we see in this parable is that everything we have been given is a gift from God. Everything we have, we have or have been given is a blessing from God. And this is so important for us to remember daily. Because whether it be our talents, whether it be our skills, whether it be our gifting, whether it be our job or our resources, whether it be our money, it is all a gift that comes from God. And when we have that perspective, it changes everything about how we view it. It's not mine that I have earned, but it is a gift from God. And when we view it as a gift, we become like this man. We become a manager. He was in charge of stewarding or managing his master's wealth. And it says he did a poor job of it. That's what he was in trouble for. That's what he was charged with. In the same way, we are entrusted with managing the resources and gifting that God has given us. We see it here in verses 10 through 13 as Jesus breaks this down and explains the parable to the disciples. He says in verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who is going to trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trusted with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? How we handle our wealth is a gauge to our heart, and we have been entrusted with resources. We have been entrusted with wealth. We have been entrusted with talents and giftings by God. We are entrusted to use them for his glory. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells another parable. It might be familiar to you. It's called the parable of the talents. And in this, the master goes away and he gives different amounts of talents to the three servants. The first two put their money to work and they double the wealth of the master. But the third one is lazy and it says he digs a hole and he just buries it. In it, Jesus commends those that put the resources to work and rejects the lazy one who sat on what he has given. In the same way, whether it be money, whether it be talents, whether it be resources, God has entrusted you and I with different giftings in this lifetime. The question is, will we be found faithful with what he has given us? 
Or will, we made, or will we have made what he has given us our God? Have we leveraged the resources we've been given for kingdom gain? Or have we been, have we been distracted by them? Distracted by personal gain? But before we get to that, let me focus for just a second on the issue of stewardship. Or uh, in non-church words, responsible money management. But I like the word steward, and here's why. Because before we can leverage our resources for kingdom gain, we must first steward what we have been given. And the word steward asserts that we recognize that what we have is not really ours. According to Google, which is always right, um, Google says that a steward is someone who is responsible for someone else's property. I love that perspective. A steward is responsible for someone else's property. And so when we recognize that all we have is a gift from God, we become the stewards or responsible for managing it. So our wealth, our resources, our talents are not ours. They're not ours to hold on to, but they are a gift from God for us to manage and leverage for His good and His glory. The unjust steward is fired for being a bad steward. So how do we avoid becoming bad stewards of what God has given us? You think about our world, our world, our, our culture, it preaches consumerism, it preaches uh, materialism, it preaches immediacy, it preaches, right, zero down, no interest for 90 days. That's every commercial. But all of those things lead us to being poor stewards of God's gifts. Uh, Dave Ramsey, he's a, a Christian money manager, he calls on his li- listeners to live countercultural to those notions. He will often say that you have to live like nobody else today so that you can live and give like nobody else in the future. We are called to be wise stewards, and part of being a wise steward is being wise with our money. It's having a plan for it and managing it well because it is a gift from God and doesn't belong to us. You start looking at at statistics of how our culture handles money, and it is mind-blowing. The Wall Street Journal says only 68% of Americans spend less than they make. Do you hear that? Only 68% spend less than they make. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that's a bad idea. That means that 32% of Americans spend more money than they make. Also, according to the Wall Street Journal, only a third of Americans have any sort of a savings account. Right? That's not being a good steward. And part of what we are called to is to manage what we have been given so that we can leverage it for the kingdom. But when I read those stats, it's troubling, but it also makes sense why uh, Dave Ramsey would say what he says. If we are good stewards, we will look different than those around us. We will not look like our friends, and they will not understand, and that is okay. When we are good stewards, we probably won't have the newest truck, the the newest fly rod, the newest four-wheeler, the newest camper, but we will be responsible for what what we have been given, and we will not be controlled by our debt. We're not called to impress others. We are called to live and glorify God, even with the way we spend and use our wealth. The reality is that's not easy, is it? Or we would all do it, right? It can be hard for for many of us, and, and stewardship is a new concept for many of us. When my wife and I, when we sit down and we discuss finances, like it's often like we are talking in two different languages. I love numbers. Like Numbers speak to me way better than words, and it's a foreign language for her. And so budgeting, especially working, uh, working together for us as a couple, that, that is a difficult challenge. 
But just because something is difficult, because just because something's not fun to talk about, that doesn't mean it's not important or it's not worth the effort. God has called us to be good stewards of what we've been given. And because of that, it is worth the effort to make a plan that works for you. There's so many good tools out there, and it's worth finding one that works for you. I know we've tried multiple different budgeting apps and methods and uh, different ways, and some have been good and some have been disastrous over the last 10 years. But keep trying. Find something that works for you. Uh, But I just encourage you to keep trying, keep looking and trying to make a plan. If you have questions about that or if you need help finding a tool or resources, let us know and we will help connect you with an expert that can help you uh, in this area. Louis Giglio said, everything on earth, including our financial resources, is God's in the first place. So in reality, we don't own our resources, but rather we're entrusted by God to steward his wealth. So cultivate a mindset of stewardship instead of ownership. Everything we have belongs to God and is a gift given to us to manage and steward well. So how, how do we like practically and how do we biblically kind of wrap our mindsets around stewardship? Romans 11.36, we get this, a verse that says, Acknowledge that what you have been given is a gift from God. It's all from God. Proverbs 21.5 tells us to make a plan for our spending and to stick with it. Romans 13.8, it gives us this great wisdom of don't spend or don't use more than you have. Matthew 6.21 says to prioritize God's priorities, loving people and advancing his kingdom because where your treasure is is where your heart is. Philippians 4.19 reminds us that God will take care of our needs. He will provide all that we need. Okay, last point and final point of application, that is this, that money or wealth is a resource to be leveraged for God's glory in his kingdom. We talk about this all the time in terms of our life, in terms of our talent, our relationships and resources. But just like those things, money or wealth is a gift we have been given to manage and leverage for the kingdom. That's why it's so important that we are responsible, good stewards of what we've been given. Because if we aren't responsible, then we don't have anything left to leverage for the kingdom. And that's what we are told is so paramount. We steward our resources well so we can leverage them for the kingdom. Jesus says in verse 11, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Only two things are going to matter in eternity. Our relationship with God and our faithfulness to point others to him. God wants us to use our worldly wealth to gain friends, to bless others for eternal gain. That doesn't mean we just go out there and like spend money, like try to buy friends. But our wealth is an opportunity to bless others. When we, fan, when we manage our finances well, we have the resources to help our neighbor whose car is broken down. When we manage our finances well, we have the resources to give to orphans. We have the resources to take a friend to dinner in need. We have the resources to give back to our community and to show love in tangible and practical ways. We can leverage our resources for others, and in that we invest in their eternal future. Managing our resources also affords us the opportunity to give towards kingdom impact. It allows us to support the local church, to support missionaries, to support other church plants around the state and the country, to support other gospel-centered causes. Jesus, the Bible says earthly riches are, are great, but the kingdom is the greatest gift. And the forgiveness given to us by Jesus is greater than anything else on earth. So we leverage our gifts here 
for kingdom advancement. That's why I love that hymn. When we are focused on Jesus and what he has done for us, the things of earth grow strangely dim. We saw it earlier, but Jesus says material things and earthly riches are fleeting, but the eternal is forever. I've said this many times, you guys know this, but I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and growing up in Portland, Oregon, man, I was a diehard Trailblazer fan. That, that's their basketball team. In the 90s, they had a crew. They had Clyde Drexler. That guy was my hero. There was Terry Porter. There was Cliff Robinson. There was Buck Williams. There was Kevin Duckworth. I mean, these were my people. Like, I, I loved them. My, my, my grandparents had season tickets, so I would go uh, to every game they would take me to. But they were owned by a man named Paul Allen, and Paul Allen was also the uh, co-founder of Microsoft. Uh, and I know nothing about his religious beliefs or background, but he died a few years ago and left $20 billion to be, to be figured out by his estate and by his lawyers. $20 billion. You know how much of that went with him to eternity? Right? Not a dime. Instead, his $20 billion estate is still being figured out by lawyers. It's still being figured out. His sister now owns a team, and it's absolutely killing the franchise. Now, Paul Allen was a generous man, and the city of Portland, at least, was better for his investment. But the point is, life is fleeting. Money is fleeting, but God is eternal. And we want to invest in those things that make an eternal difference. So the question is, we look at our, our, our pocketbook, we look at our budget, are we leveraging our resources for the advancement of the kingdom? As we mentioned earlier, this isn't an amount issue. It's a stewardship or a heart issue. Luke 21, Jesus tells another story. He tells the story of the widow's mind. It says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the, the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put, more, has put in more than all the others. Because all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. And she put in all she had to live in. Over and over, he says, this is a heart issue. Not an amount, not a giving issue. One of, the, one of the greatest things, one of the, the coolest things about being a church planter uh, is the relationship I've got to establish with those that support our church all over the country and, and all over the world. And we exist because of people that have been incredible stewards of their wealth and that have given to us out of their abundance. And we exist because of people that have little but have given generously. Both are so critical to what we have been able to do here. Both have been used by God. Many of these people will never step foot in Green River, but they have given so the gospel could be proclaimed. They've leveraged their resources for the kingdom of God. So often we focus on the amount, but God focuses on the heart. So often we focus on whether or not our gift really matters or makes a difference. Or we say we'll give more when we have more, but Jesus says those don't matter. He says what matters is what is in our heart and how we are using what we've been given for the kingdom's glory. If you want a practical starting point, the, the Bible teaches that 10% of our income should go towards kingdom causes. Uh, with many believers led by the Spirit to give more and above and beyond that. The Bible says the Lord will show you what he would have you give. Again, it's not about, about an amount, it's about our heart and our priorities. Tim Keller said in his book, Giving Power, you will always give effortlessly to that which is your salvation. You will always give effortlessly to those things that give your life meaning. He says, if Jesus is the one who saved you, your money flows easily into his work, his people, and his causes. 
He says, if, however, your real religion is your appearance or social status or personal comfort or pleasure, your money flows most easily into those items and symbols. It's a gauge of our heart. So as we conclude, we're reminded that how we manage, how we spend, how we give our resources is a great gauge of where our hearts are. We are also reminded through this parable that we are but stewards of all of the resources and talents that God has entrusted us with. And then finally, we are challenged to leverage what we've been given for the kingdom of God. Just a moment, Melinda, she's going to come and play and, and play as we respond. And as we leave this week, I would really challenge you to take some time and gauge where your heart is. To gauge what your motivation is, to gauge what your master is. Right? I'm not preaching this sermon because we're in some sort of a budget crisis. We are not. God has blessed us abundantly. So if you're worried about that, let me know and I'll tell you another church to give to. And they would love that. But I share this message with you because Jesus is concerned about your heart. And as your pastor, I am too. And how we steward our resources, a gauge of where our heart and our priorities are. Right? I absolutely believe in God's faithfulness. And I believe in the importance of and blessing of trusting God with all areas of our life. So gauge where your heart is this week. Examine your heart. And then secondly, if you're here and you've been convicted that you have been a poor steward in any way, don't give up. But sit down and take an honest look at how you are managing what God has given you. Right? That can be hard. It's not fun to admit when we've managed things poorly. But there's always grace and forgiveness when we come back to God. So repent and ask for forgiveness for not stewarding what he's given you and then make a plan and start stewarding his resources better. And then finally, if you are here and you don't yet know Jesus, then the, the question is the same for you. Who is your master? Who is the master of your heart? Who is the Lord of your life? Jesus invites you to repent and follow him. And he says, if you do, you will inherit eternal life with him. A gift that isn't fleeting a gift that will never leave you or forsake you, a gift of more future worth than anything you could have here on earth. He says he will give you a purpose and a new life in him. So if you don't know Jesus, would you consider maybe today is the day that you make the decision to give him your life and follow after him? Would that be a great story to tell in the future? The pastor was rambling on and on, on, and on about something about money, but God was speaking to me about my heart. And I chose to follow him on that day. So I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, Melinda will play. We'll just take a moment to bow our heads and to reflect. Then I'll come and close us, and we will dismiss. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of being the Lord and the masters of our hearts and our lives. So God, I pray that as we leave today, Lord, that we would just reflect on what is the true God or what is the true master of our heart. Is it you or is it something else? And God, I pray that if it is something else, that you would reveal that quite clearly to us. Lord, that you would give us the humility to, to uh, repent of that and to turn and to follow after you. God, we thank you that we are a blessed people. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have uh, just given us abundant resources and talents. And God, I pray that we would be a people that don't sit on that and don't make that our idol, but that we would be a people that leverage that for your glory in your kingdom, and that as we leverage it, that many in our community might learn of you and learn to trust you with their life. May we be a people that leverage everything for kingdom gain. 
And God, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would experience the greatest gift of all, and that is a relationship with you. So God, we pray that you would speak to us over the next minute or two, Lord, and that you would clearly uh, call us to the change or, or whatever it is you're calling us to. God, we love you, and it's your name we pray.